0: All right, let's keep going with our uh, 30 competencies of disciples. Next, I'm not even sure where we are. I'm on L. I don't have it. In, uh, L is the 13th letter of the alphabet. So we're, we're getting close to halfway. Um, application to the word, of the word to life. So the objective here is that the disciple learn to apply the word of God to one or more specific situations in life maybe share your own application from your own life with him or her. Now, this is really, 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 really relevant. At the break that we just took, I was talking to somebody who was asking me about pot smoking. I said it's not okay. Well, why not? It's an herb. It's not a chemical like um, alcohol is. Well, in fact, it is a chemical. It's called THC and it's the cannabinoid that that we seek to introduce to our bloodstream when we ingest Uh, cannabis, pot, whether by smoking or maybe making brownies or whatever. So the principle by analogy is the same. It says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the spirit. Well, be not stoned with pot, wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the spirit. It's the same exact principle. We're not to alter our consciousness through any kind of chemical means, whether it be liquid, i.e. ethanol, in the form of alcohol in beverages, or THC that we ingest through the use of pot. Or, for that matter, if we're using cocaine or heroin or anything else. Not only that, relevant principle, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't put things into the temple of the Holy Spirit that will defile it. Where does it say that that's defiling the temple? God wants you healthy. Anything that you're doing that's degrading your health, you probably shouldn't be doing no. We're not going to go down the rabbit trail right now. I'm talking about recreational use yes, right now. So, when we talk about this, there's, there's a broad spectrum of things that apply. And so when we talk about the application of the word to life, we want to get the disciple to think by analogy. Well, if alcohol's not okay, I can't do that. If killing's not okay, then I can't do that. And help them think through these things. Maybe have them write down their situation. Maybe how the particular scripture passage addresses it. And then, of course, pray with them. We want to learn, teach them how to pray. We want to get them in that habit. So pray together over the situation according to the wisdom that the word of God contains. Again, I have scriptures for all of this, but I'm skipping them. Next, prayer well the objective is to develop a consistent prayer life so try to get them to pray ten minutes a day now people say my mind wanders i don't know what to pray tell them to make it a dialogue but also tell them to bring their needs make your requests known to god with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that's what paul says in philippians four so we want to Teach them how to do that. So what are the activities? Well, share your own answers to prayer. Give them some hope and some confidence. I'm assuming if you've been with the Lord any length of time, you have seen prayers answered. Observe them when they're in a group setting. Maybe there's a um, prayer that goes on at church when, you know, you break down and pray for each other in the service, or maybe you're running a small group in your home and they come to it. Watch how they pray, observe, and be ready to help them learn how to pray. Oftentimes, people are very, very reluctant to pray aloud. They feel very awkward about it. They, they just feel like they don't know how to do it. Uh, they might say something wrong. So... Take some notes, maybe just mental notes, write them down if you need to, and then talk with them later about how they're praying and how they might pray more effectively. Maybe share scriptures with them that can be used in praying. There's lots of scripture on prayer. A lot of it has very important admonitions and exhortations for us. Pray constantly, uh, pray continually, ask, seek, knock, keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. With Thanksgiving, so pray with Thanksgiving, introduce that concept. I mean, there's a lot of things that could go in here. I'm just throwing things off the top of my head right now. Help them develop a prayer list, specific things and people that they want to pray for. Maybe ask them to pray for one of your needs. That's showing some vulnerability, some accessibility. We want to have that kind of accessibility. <coughs> pray for Him. Pray for her at set times in your own life, and as I said earlier, on the run. And obviously introduce the person to people who pray, whether they pray in person, or maybe if they, if you don't know any true prayer warriors, maybe give them a book on prayer. C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer would be one. Praying Hyde might be another one. Um, Reese Howells' Intercessor. There's a bunch of these books out there. Some of them are biographies. Some of them give how-tos on prayer, but the point is we want to turn them into praying people. And again, the goal is only ten minutes a day. They don't need need to be doing three hours a day. If they take to it, they might go there, but you're not trying to to push them to that. Alright, I've got a bunch of scriptures, but we won't look at them. Personal testimony. We're going to try and have our disciple prepare a written testimony. That means they literally write down their testimony. Now, if you attended the event I did here a couple of years back on evangelism, one of the things I made everybody do was go write their testimony down. How many of you attended that event? How many of you still know that testimony? A couple, all right. So they need a testimony because it's, a, it's something they can work from. Ideally their testimony will include at least one scripture and the goal is that they would, they would find somebody to share it with at least twice a month. Now that's not that high of an S, that's once every 14 days. But what it does do is it puts something in front of them that you do want to be a soul winner, you do want to be out there sharing. We don't want to get into what we call religious bondage but, but zero is the wrong answer. So we're trying to set the bar so it's not going to break them, but zero is the wrong answer. And if people say, well, I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed, well, maybe we need to give them some coaching on how to witness. We need to take them witnessing. We need to show them how to do that. But at the end of the day, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. And so if somebody is afraid to share their, go- their testimony, if they don't know how to share the gospel, there's a deficiency there. And it's not okay to say, oh, don't worry, you don't have to witness. That's somebody else's ministry. It's everybody's ministry to be witnessing. Activities, well share your testimony with them if you haven't already done so. Again, most of you put up your hand, so about three minutes you can do that. Then have them share their testimony with you even if you already know it. Why? Well you want to give them a chance to give their testimony. You're giving them practice. And if they stumble over it, maybe you can help them talk about, here's how you could have said that better so it feels better, it flows smoother. Most people know when they're being awkward and if you give them constructive feedback on here's how you could say that that would really be impacting, boom, most people will take that on board. Study Paul's testimony. He gives it in Acts 26 when he's on trial and approach that passage as a way of developing your testimony. Maybe look at the key components that Paul used in Acts 26 and how he describes his story of meeting Jesus. Take them witnessing somewhere. While witnessing, allow them to do some talking, maybe by drawing them out with questions. Don't let them just sit there quietly. You'll be on point for a while, for sure. But draw them out, give them the opportunity to talk. You know, my friend, my friend uh, Scott here, you know, he wants, to, he wants to tell you a little bit about how he, he recently became a Christian. He wants to tell you a little bit about what happened. Scott's now ready to go. So you've given him the opportunity. When he closes out, you can pick it up and carry it on. You say, man, I don't do that in my normal life. Right. We're going to change that, we're seeking to change a lifestyle, we're seeking to change a culture of being non-involved with our cities and our civilization. Ask him or her to share his or her testimony with Christians, maybe maybe in a Bible study group. Maybe you bring them into church on Sunday, Wendy, I want to show you my, my new friend here, You you want to hear how they came to the Lord? Yeah, I really do. All right, so now they're sharing with you. This is a low-risk, low-threat way of doing it. It's not like you're, you know, up against a professor from the University of Queensland. Pray with this person, this new disciple, about friends and relatives with whom they can share the testimony. They need to be thinking about those outside themselves. That's part of the competency list. So one of the ways of doing that is, man, I've got this unsaved aunt. She's really hard towards the gospel. I want to figure out a way how I can talk to her, how I can even bring this up. This won't be an easy conversation, but I want to have it anyway because, because God loves all and wants all men and women to be saved. Come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray for them that God will build the desire for evangelism into their life and maybe expose them to the testimonies of others because that will give them some sense of how other people talk about their own conversion. The Lordship of Christ. The objective is to show Lordship commitment by having Christ control at least one uncommitted area of his or her life. What would be some activities? Well, there's a lot of books on lordship out there. I've got a couple of them listed, but some of them are dated. But the point is, you want to explain that if Christ is not the Lord of all, then he is not the Lord at all. He does not brook any comers or any challenge to his supremacy. So maybe share a personal testimony with them about how you yourself made Christ your Lord over an area that you didn't necessarily want to give up. You thought it was okay. You liked it even if you knew it was wrong. But win, lose, or draw, in the end, Jesus won because he's Lord. And maybe look at passages that particularly highlight the Lordship of Christ, like Colossians 1.18 or Hebrews chapter one. Next objective is faith. We want them to learn to trust God for specific needs. The key word there is specific. And the next key word is trust. So this isn't just, yeah, I got faith in God. This is, my car broke down and I need $200 to fix it, and I'm praying for God to bring me $200. There's no reason to suppose it's going to come because in the natural, no one's going to give you that money. But they're going to learn to trust God for that money by seeking him for it. So how are you going to do that one? Well activities, share a recent personal testimony that you have of how God provided or has done something in response to a request of faith. It may not be monetary, it might just be a loved one who got saved or healed. Or it could be something that happened with a work situation that improved. Anything will do, but the point is that we want them to have faith for God's um, oversight of their life and his superintending grace. We want them to, to live with that as part of their world. And then maybe read through a passage like Hebrews chapter 11 and note how each person in that passage used faith to overcome the circumstance they were facing. Now that could turn into a long multi-week study because there's a lot of heroes of faith listed in Hebrews 11, but it's a really good example of how people did that. And then there's love. Well, the objective is to learn to show love for other people by expressing concern for them or acting in a tangible, loving way, perhaps doing something for a needy person. And we want them to do this every week. This one's a weekly. This one isn't scary like witnessing and sharing your testimony. And you know, unfortunately, we live in a world where Christian virtue is no longer taught or prized. And so most people out there are pretty brutal, they're pretty arrogant, they're pretty full of themselves, they're just nasty people when you rub up against them too close. Oh, they can put on the facade for a little while, but underneath it, things get kind of bad. So when we talk about showing love for another person, maybe share a personal example with your, Uh, with your uh, disciple of where you've shown love, where you chose to show love that you wouldn't have otherwise shown perhaps to somebody who was decidedly unlovable. Maybe you can share stories if you know them. A friend of mine was converted in the Kwai River prison camp during the Second World War He was a commander in the Scottish Highlanders and there was a young man in his regiment who was um, a born-again Christian and he cared for the other prisoners who were wounded and sick who were being forced to build the bridge over the River Kwai. The Japanese became so enraged by his care for the other prisoners, the fact that he bound their wounds and tended their pus-filled feet and legs, gave up his food so that they might have a few more calories to expend, maybe buy another day of life that they ultimately crucified him on a tree and then used him for bayonet practice. Oh, wow. And in the end, my friend, the commander of the Scottish Highlanders was converted watching that, that younger man's martyrdom. Well, that would be an example of love. It's a story that's not my own, but it's pretty powerful. It made you go, oh man, right? Oh, But the point is, there's lots of ways to get these kinds of ideas in front of people. So use your imagination. Not only that, demonstrate love to your disciple. Do something for them. Say something nice to them. Take them somewhere. Buy them a gift. Something. We all know about the five languages of love. Direct it off of your spouse maybe onto this person that you are trying to show love to. Obviously share scriptural examples and principles of love. Here's another idea, maybe visit a hospital or an elder care facility, a rescue mission, or a prison together so that they can see what it looks like to engage in compassion ministry. And there's a couple of passages, there are many I have on my list here, but there's a couple that I would particularly commend to you, Um, 1 Corinthians 13, obviously, verses four to seven, and then Isaiah 58 next objective is the tongue. Now the objective is to demonstrate control over the tongue. Now this includes both your words and your tone. Tone's a lot harder to control than words. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He didn't say exactly what that would mean. So some people think that because their words are clean, it's fine, but they're harsh, they're condescending, they're imperious, and their tone tells you that. You got to get the tone under control also. Some people don't even realize how strongly they come across, how harsh they come, how angry they are. Other people, it's a profanity issue. Or they tell dirty jokes all the time. Or they love to flay people open with their tongue, criticizing and condemning. There's a lot of ways that the tongue is is a deadly fire and a restless evil is what James calls it. Share a story of how you controlled your tongue. Maybe especially in a situation where you didn't want to control your tongue. You wanted to really let them have it. And study through the third chapter of James together because that's where all of the teaching on the tongue is found. Now I kind of touched on that when I mentioned, you know, this event and where is everybody and people have commitments and all that. let's let's broaden it and not focus narrowly on this. The objective is to demonstrate effective use of time by forming and following a schedule. Why? Well, because part of how we honor people is by honoring their time. And if we are always late to meetings, we're actually expressing a great deal of disrespect for them. It's not just meetings too. If someone asks you for something and they say, could you have this back to me by Wednesday and you show up Wednesday at 5 p.m. or Thursday morning, you you weren't late to a meeting, but you missed a deliverable, you missed a deadline. And it shows that you're all wrapped up in you rather than in them. So this is actually part of learning to be otherly. It's also part of self-governance and self-management. It's part of being under the rule of the Holy Spirit. So what are the activities? Well, how about work out a schedule with him or her? Now this will particularly be true, Tavia, you're working with a lot of the youth in the church, they could use this. Some 20-somethings can use it, hopefully by the time they're 30-something, they've got it under control, but maybe they don't, maybe they still need help there. This is part of discipleship you know what people who are late all the time they don't stay employed so maybe that's part of their reason why they keep getting let go from jobs and therefore their economics are suffering and the blessing of God isn't flowing to them it could be as simple as that Help the person use time uh, well through both instruction and coaching. So you might tell them about your own life and struggles with it, but also coach them about what they're doing, how they need to start sooner or eliminate things from their life or don't stop and check your cell phone five minutes before you need to be walking out the door to work. Do that later. Get going. And some of this stuff is really basic, but you'd be shocked at how many people don't understand it. Obviously, pray for them in this area. The will of God. The objective is to learn to make major decisions using biblical principles from the Word of God. So, activities. Share a personal experience of finding God's will. If you're hearing a similarity in each one of these where you share your story first, that's intentional. The assumption is you're doing these things and you have stories of victory and success to share. Do as I do, not as I say. Have him or her share how he or she makes decisions. Most probably that doesn't include the will of God. So look at the gap between here's the will of God in this area, how are you deciding what to do, and what are you going to do going forward so that your decision-making more fully conforms to the mind of God. Then discuss a a decision, maybe two, maybe three, that they are facing right now. Make it practical, make it real. Talk about what might be a godly response. I would try to lead them to the answer rather than, than telling them the answer by maybe showing them scriptures that are relevant or talking about principles found in scripture. And then pray about the situation in the light of scripture, so that they can discern what the will of God might be in this particular situation. Now this is closely related to this matter of lordship, but it's not quite the same thing. Lordship is more about something that they haven't yet submitted, but they know the answer. The will of God is more about, I don't even know the answer, what does God want in this thing? Should I marry this person or not? Should I take this job or not? Should I move or not? Those kinds of questions. Obedience. The objective is to carry out specific instructions of scripture in an area of life. So, discuss how to apply scripture to life. This is a good place to reinforce that, share your own illustrations, and then maybe share the results of a situation in your own life where you applied a truth of scripture and you saw it to work maybe in spades. I'll give you a really good one here, tithing. Tithing is commanded for us. People say it's Old Testament. Every single letter in the Bible is inspired and that includes the Old Testament. And God says, test me in this and see if I will not pour out a blessing so great you can't contain it. Now it doesn't mean that you give today and tomorrow it's happening. It's more like you're building a pipeline. But if you start tithing regularly, what you'll find is that will build a groundswell and God will bring prosperity to your world. Sometimes you'll be tested in it and it'll be difficult. But the book of Malachi, God specifically addresses them in this matter. And he says, you said harsh things about me. And the people of God said, "How have we said harsh things about you? You said it was it was useless to give to the work of the Lord." So the Lord actually faces them down on that point. And so we need to, you know, we need to talk about these various areas where we're learning to live in obedience. Possibly them them being areas where we didn't even know that it was an issue with God. what situations they may be facing, find scriptures that apply, discuss the application, and pray about them. The Holy Spirit. Now, the objective here is to be able to explain through Scripture who the Holy Spirit is, thus that CD that I showed you at the beginning, how he helps us in our daily walk with Christ, to abide in him, to hear his voice, to stay connected to him, to draw life from him. And we should be able to explain to the other person how to walk in the Spirit. And with that we should talk about the infilling of the Holy Spirit and we should be able to explain the role of tongues the gift of tongues in the infilling of the Spirit why this is so critical of a sign as an indicator and how we use tongues in our own daily walk what are some activities we can do in all this well you could get that CD and listen to it but never mind that teach the person about the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity and use it as an opportunity to talk about the Trinity. Discuss things that might grieve the Holy Spirit or quench him using passages like Galatians chapter five verses 22 and 23. There are other passages but that's one. With him or her, asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance, asking for the control of the Holy Spirit over their life, and then pray with him or her for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, "I've never prayed for anybody for to get filled with the Holy Spirit." That freaks me out. I, I'm afraid it won't work. Welcome to the discipleship loop. Because you know, there was a man named Ananias. He lived in Damascus. We don't know who Ananias was. He was just some dude. He was a disciple, though, and it says he was a disciple. And when the Lord spoke to him while he was praying, he said, go find this man Saul. And he goes, I know who that guy is. He's come here to kill Christians. I don't want to go see him. And the Lord says to him, go. He is my chosen vessel. I have appointed him to preach to the nations. There's an obedience check right there. Ananias could have said, no way but he obeyed. He said, all right, if you say so, I will. Ananias goes, he comes to him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the Damascus road, he has sent me to you that I might pray for you that you would receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. How would you like to have that on your record? I'm the guy that laid hands on the Apostle Paul and got him baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't know if your disciple won't be the next Apostle Paul. There was a woman named Henrietta Mears. She had a guy in her um, youth camp up at Forest Home in the Southern California mountains. And she, she discipled him. She led him, she prayed for him, she prayed over him. she watched him go out (laughs) to the lake at Forest Home (laughs) and kneel down by a rock and commit his life to the purposes of God. And then he got up and came back into her camp classroom. He went on to lead a hundred million people to Christ, and his name was Billy Graham. You don't know when you might be leading the next Billy Graham. Gunner Payne led John Wimber to Christ and taught him the very principles that I'm teaching you, the exact principles that John would live them out. And John Wimber went on to become John Wimber. In this church, in this circle of people, that name doesn't need further commentary. Some places it would. So pray with them for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Put your mitts on them in an appropriate place and pray that the Spirit of God would come over them and that they would be filled with power. That's part of your job as their discipler. Satan as the enemy we already said most people think Satan is a force so the objective is that they can express instances of victory over Satan and his temptations both through prayer and through scripture the objective is that he or she understands Satan as a personal enemy who must be resisted what are some activities how about asking them about their biggest temptation ask them if they feel a presence that comes when that temptation comes Help them to identify when Satan or one of his minions is active. Share some of your own personal battles and victories. Pray together against Satan's attacks in their life. Review Bible passages on the ways that Satan attacks. You might say, I don't know what that is. Well, we can give you a Bible study on that. But walk them through it. Help them see it from Scripture. Mostly he attacks through our appetites of our flesh and through our mind. That's what he did with Jesus, right? Hunger was an appetite. If you are the son of God was an attack in his mind. He offered him power and fame. That was a temptation of the flesh. And then a misuse of scripture was another one, throw yourself off the temple and it says, he'll command his angels to to bear you up. But in fact, that was a misuse of the scripture. So those would be common ways, there are others, but that gives you an example. Share how you've used scripture to overcome Satan's attacks. Maybe study the the account of Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4, 1 to 11 together. Dealing with sin. Identify an area of sin in their life where there is not yet victory and develop a plan for obtaining victory over it. Monitor what's going on week by week so you can figure out if progress is being made. What are some activities? Well, share with the disciple a means of victory that you used in your own life. In other words, this worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Share some of your own struggles so they can pray for you and pray together about an area of sin that they are struggling with as well as the one you've just shared and share the dangers of continuing to sin. Ongoing sin has its own unique problems. It hardens your heart and it makes you unable to receive truth. The scripture says this, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in the wilderness at the waters of Meribah and Massah. Because I was angry with that generation in the aftermath of that and I swore in my anger they will never enter my rest. So when people don't deal with the sin in their lives, it ends up becoming an area of hardness. It can also become a gateway for demonization. But this is not a demonization conference so I don't want to go into that too much. Assurance of forgiveness. They need to be able to express confidently the assurance of forgiveness based on one or more promises of the Bible. Activities. Share your own testimony of sin forgiven. Now, this is not, by the way, the same thing as the forgiveness that comes when you get born again. This is the forgiveness that comes when you sin subsequent to salvation and you need to get clear because you're feeling ratty, you're feeling dirty, you're feeling disconnected from God. How do I get back to God when I've been away from him because I did this thing, whatever this thing is? Ask them if they've experienced God's forgiveness of sin subsequent to salvation. They may say, well, no, you know, in fact, you know, you prayed with me and I got saved, but the last two weeks I've been doing all kinds of stuff that's just like my old stuff, and man, I feel worse than before. Yeah, that's because you're now a new creature in Christ, and you're sinning against your Christ nature. We need to knock that stuff off. You need to minister to them for the sin that they've been in and show them how to confess their sin to the Lord and get free of that. Obviously, Pastor passages like 1 John 1 9 are relevant for that. If restitution is required (coughs) because of an area of personal conflict with a person, teach them to make restitution. We've often made forgiveness of sin too easy and too light. Restitution for those who don't know means payback. You owe them something because of what you did, whether it's an apology, money or anything else. The second coming of Christ, this is one of the core doctrines of Christianity. Jesus is coming back and we need to live in the light of that because it could be at any moment. A lot of us don't believe it'll be any moment and we have our own reasons for that. Sometimes it's pure hardness of heart, other times we look at the scripture and we say well it says the gospel will be preached to all nations, that hasn't happened yet so he's not coming quite yet. But the point is we need to live in the light of the expectation that Jesus will return. And maybe ask them this question, how would you live differently today if you knew Jesus were returning? Right now? Tonight? What would you do differently? Let that become the thing that sets your priorities. Four more to go. Witnessing, I keep coming back to it. The objective is that they take the initiative to share the gospel clearly using the Bible. They know how to use the Bible. Obviously, that means they know the Bible well enough, which implies they've been reading and studying it. So this might be a little later in your two-year discipleship loop, but still, it's got to be in there somewhere. We do want people to be doing this. I remember the first time I was with somebody, I was being discipled and we were standing in line at the commons area, what's called commons, it's the cafeteria at my university and there was, you know, this line ahead of us of people going to get their food and this line behind us and my friend and I are just standing there and he'd been converted in the Marine Corps and literally had laid his life on the line in the immediate aftermath of his conversion and when I met him, he was, he was on flyer, man, he was, He was burning so we're standing there in line, and we're kind of talking, and he just turns around to the person behind us and starts up in this conversation. Well, I was okay with that, but then all of a sudden he, he, he turned that conversation right into a discussion about Christ and their soul, and did they want to receive the Lord, and I wanted to go through the floor. I was so embarrassed. I was like, what are you doing? And a lot of us would be that way if we were, say, down at the coffee club, and, you know, David and I were there, and all of a sudden we just zeroed in on the waitress, and started to go for it we have to overcome that fear that's fear of man is what that is and it 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 too is sin that might be an area for victory for some of us but the point is we want to train disciples who can take that initiative and share the gospel clearly also want them, this is on the activities list, maybe make and use a prayer list for non-Christian friends and family and allow him or her to observe you as you make contacts and witness. Maybe lead an evangelistic Bible study together. Just decide to open one in your neighborhood and invite all the neighbors around you. Three houses on either side and the people across the street, same category. That will give you enough houses you can draw on. A lot of them will say no, but guaranteed if you invite, some will come now you've got people, you can have your evangelistic Bible study, your sector. In the military, when they, take a, when they put a commander in charge of a sector, it is his or her responsibility to subdue and control that sector. There will be no insurgency of any kind in that area. All houses are cleared. Any illegal weapons are picked up. Anybody who's an insurgent is arrested. They keep the peace. They own that sector. And the only difference between what a lieutenant does with a city block and what a colonel does with a whole sector of the city is the number of units that they control and the number of areas that they're responsible for. Every one of us lives somewhere. Do you even know the names of your neighbors? Have you ever prayed for them for anything? Have you ever had them over to your house? so this is perfect ground you can take your disciple say we're gonna start an evangelistic Bible study I'm gonna invite all my neighbors and if they live somewhere maybe you do it at their house too now you got two Bible studies you go that's two nights a week I get it maybe only do one but the point is you're a disciple yourself now this isn't about whether you get to watch the AFL game or the rugby league or whatever it is this is about what are you doing for the kingdom what are you doing about Brisbane What are you doing about the kingdom right here right now? And it's not that hard to do. And after you've done it with the three on either side and the people across the street, expand it out three more. Run another one 12 weeks later. See how that goes. You say, I don't know how to lead a Bible study like that. Get the book called Alpha, written by Nikki Gumbel out of Holy Trinity Brompton in London. It's a 12-week series study. Everything you need is right there. You don't even have to be smart. There's others you could use, but that's an example. That would be a really good one to do, by the way, Tavia, with some of the youth. Have them start up studies of this kind, you know, with their friends from school, with their neighbors that live on their block, things like that. Be very powerful. Kids are easy to convert at this age. Follow-up. Well, follow-up is following up a person that you've had some contact with. Maybe you shared with them, they didn't receive yet. They didn't get saved yet. Or you prayed for them to get healed, they didn't get healed, but you're following up to find out how's it going today. I prayed for someone in San Diego, California on Sunday night. This morning I woke up early and I sent a Facebook message and I said, I'm just checking in on you. How are you doing in the wake of prayer? That's follow-up. Maybe they did pray for someone to receive Christ. Well, how are you doing with your walk with Christ? You want them to start engaging with their new disciple. So follow-up could be in any number of dimensions. So the objective is to pray that God would give a person for your disciple to follow up. And once that person has been given by God, follow it up. Share your own follow-up plans and actions with him or her. I just did that with you. I told you I prayed for someone to be healed in San Diego. Even though I'm here, I sent a message this morning following up. Have him or her accompany you if you go to visit somebody who needs follow-up. Show them how it's done. Don't just tell them, show them. Maybe read a book together on grounding disciples so that they, people who are converts can be stabilized, and then they start moving into this track that we're talking about. Now, note with all of this, there's a, there's a high level of engagement, personal disclosure. You are becoming their friend. This is a person who you will know the rest of your life. Maybe circumstances will mean in due time that you will not have as much contact as you once did, but this is something somebody that you have been bonded to forever. This is the work of the Lord. It's just like having a baby. You're bonded to that person forever, whether you like it or not. It's part of being a parent. Pray together about those with whom the disciple is interacting. Pray about how best to follow up if it's a new convert. Giving, the objective is that they learn to give regularly to the Lord's work. Now they may not have much, but they should give of what they have. It'll be a lot easier to tithe on a $10,000 a month income if they learned to tithe when they were making $100 a week at Maccas. So help him or her list scriptural principles on giving from Bible study. Now you might not know those yourself, so you might have to do that study in advance, but you know, look at what the scripture has to say about this. Maybe they need a budget, so you might have to help them develop a budget. You say, I don't even have a budget. All right, well then get something from someone like, uh, I don't know, Ron Blue. There are plenty of people out there that teach Christian budgeting and budget management. There's also secular books that are worthy too, so maybe maybe if they don't know how to do that, help them do it. And then establish a plan for giving. Maybe they can't give a whole tithe right now, but they could give five, not 10. Well, then figure out how they're gonna go from five to six to seven to eight to nine to 10, and then how they might give above and beyond that discretionary, and let them begin to see the blessing that comes. And I do mean literal financial reward that comes because of that. And then check in and ask the hard question that nobody asks in our Western societies, how you doing with it? Are you really giving? You know, John Wimber used to say you can tell if someone is really a disciple by looking at their checkbook. Look where they're directing their cash. Everybody's got to pay utilities. Everybody's got to pay some kind of a house payment unless they're paid off. Might be a rent payment, might be a mortgage payment. Everybody's got probably something to do with a car. If nothing else, it's gasoline and insurance. If they bought it outright, they might not have anything beyond that, but maybe they have a lease payment or a car payment. These things don't go away. We want to be sensible about what those are. But then beyond that, what are you doing with your money? Is it all being spent on, you know, f- football tickets? Is it all being spent on trips to the bar, to the, to the, you know, whatever, to the pokey? Or is it going into the church? Is it going into missions? Is it going into benevolence? Ask people about that. They need to be asked. What gets measured gets done. That's one of the fundamental principles of management. And we're trying to direct people into a life of discipleship. We're not doing it to control them. We're doing it because we are trying to present them as a virgin spotless bride to Christ. Just like Paul sought to do. We have their best interest at heart. We get nothing out of this. That, by the way, is how you can be sure that they know that you get nothing out of it, is you're not asking anything of them. Finally, world vision. The objective is that they demonstrate interest in and concern for the wider mission of the church. Maybe by weekly prayer for missionaries, maybe for people of foreign countries, maybe for particular situations overseas, whether they be typhoons or you know t- or uh, tidal waves or whatever <coughs> tsunami. And maybe in addition to their tithe, they learn to give some amount of money as monthly support for a missionary. It might start as $10. That's just a couple of cups of coffee a week. But what they're already doing is they're learning to say no to themselves and yes to somebody else. Because they didn't consume it on their appetite, on their fleshly sensual desire for the smell of coffee and the, you know, the feel of the foam in their mouth or you know whatever it is that they do. Activities, well, foreign missionaries are coming through, introduce them. With them, using missionary prayer letters, use a world map, identify countries around the world, pray for those countries. Maybe get a sub- missional prayer guide like Operation World or some of the newer ones out there that give you specific targeted objectives for those those countries. Now, obviously, this one's at the latter part of two years of discipleship. I don't know that this is the one you want to be focusing on early on. You got more important things to do in months, you know, one to twelve. But this needs to. To come in somewhere. Maybe correspond with missionaries together, learn about various mission fields and agencies together. Maybe read some missionary bi- biographies together, C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer, J. Hudson Taylor, God's Man in China, Peace Child, Eternity in Their Hearts. All of these are good, wholesome reading. They're far better than most of the stuff they can watch on any form of online media. And some of the stories of of what went on in the lives of these men and women are absolutely beyond belief. Most of these books that I just named, in fact, every one of them that I just named, I've read. Most of them more than once. They inspired me when I was in my 20s because somebody took me under wing and said, I'm going to make this one a disciple. And I read them and they were good. They were engaging books. They're well written. They're, They're interesting. they gave me fuel they gave me they gave me role models they helped me understand what does another disciple look like I can read about what his life looked like or in some cases her life Amy Carmichael Elizabeth Elliot but the point is we are trying to get into them this idea because you know some of these people will be called like Timothy was to become missionaries to the nations and this just might be the flashpoint that God uses to plant that seed to launch them out and you will be the one who is responsible for it. All right, that's how we build a disciple, 30 competencies. Takes two years to do it. Some might be slower and take three. Some might be really quick and do it in a year and a half if every person in this room found somebody to disciple, maybe two people, don't overdo it, just to pick one or two, think of what we would have in this church in the year 2018. It'd be awesome. Because we'd be starting the process of multiplication. All right, now let's move to workers. Workers. The goal of workers is both that they be able to evangelize and be able to establish. I, somewhere in my 200 unopened boxes of books from our move, I have a soft copy, King James Bible, it has a yellow cover, on the front of that yellow cover is a picture of a head of wheat and it's called the Christian Worker's Bible. That's what it used to be called in the old days. If you were a Christian worker, you were one who knew how to lead people to the Lord and then lead them to maturity and after you'd led them to the Lord and all the relevant passages in the whole Bible were highlighted and there was a table of contents at the front, it was a worker's Bible. It was King James, it's out of date now, nobody reads King James. But it was a very effective tool for me in that day. What's the profile of a Christian worker? Well, evidence of strong growth in Christian virtue a la 1 Peter 4, 1 to 3. These things should be characteristic of who you are, not just occasional. In fact, the lapse should be the, uh, should be the occasional. There should be a growing interest in and compassion for the lost, and the ability to lead them to Christ personally. Lead them to Christ personally. Matthew 9, 36 to 38, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest field. These are people who should be begging God to raise up people who will go into the fields of the world. Remember, I said it earlier, most people that we raise up as disciples, they will be locals. They're not going to leave and go to seminary or Bible school. They're going to stay right in the job they're in. They're going to do what they always did. But they'll still be burdened for the world in which they live. They'll be praying for their office. I remember my friend Blaine Cook. He worked for the county of Orange when the Lord really got a hold of him about all this. And he got it from John Wimber. He started praying for the people in his office. He worked for the Orange County Appraisers Office and there were 200 people that worked in a kind of an open bullpen area. 200 workstations, everybody had a, you know, little desk with a computer at it, all their chairs. And Blaine got burdened for every person in his office because of this. Not not what I'm saying, but this concept. And he used to go to work, it was a county office. Office hours started at 8, everyone rocked up at 7.59. So Blaine went to work at 7.15, 7.30 every morning, every single morning, and he went around and he laid hands on every single chair in the office and prayed for those people by name that they would be born again. That's what he did. After two years, every single one of those 200 people had come to faith. Every single one of them. And he personally led them to the Lord. How did he do it? Took them to lunch, bought them coffee, met them for breakfast, sometimes took them to dinner, invited them to church. 200 people he led to the Lord, and when he converted the entire office, his job ended. The Lord took him out of that job. He hated that job. But you know what? He bloomed where he was planted, and he prayed for the peace of his city. How about you? Where do you work? What do you do every single day? Who's under your charge? You've been sent there as a Christian worker. You should know every person in your office. You ought to know their hopes, dreams, and fears. You should be praying for their conversion, for their baptism in the Spirit, for their healing if they need it, for their deliverance if they need it. You are their pastor. You are their evangelist. You don't happen to just have this job by random chance. I'm talking about the nuts and bolts of how we're going to trigger a revival in Brisbane that will shake the east coast of Australia. I'm tired of talking about revival. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to see it and I'm giving you practical nuts and bolts on the ground strategies that work for doing this. But it requires a change of life and a change of mentality and engagement that most of us have not had. Not only that, the profile of the worker shows patience for the weaker Christian. Galatians 6:1. one accept him whose faith is weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment over disputable matters. So as a worker now, we've moved beyond disciple, as a worker we learn to tolerate and forbear with those who are weaker in the faith. A worker is also used by God to establish believers who have become disciples, whether personally or maybe in discipleship groups. We are establishing people to become stronger in their walk and in their faith. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And we are actively seeking to make disciples of people. Maybe even invite them into a discipling relationship. Jesus did say, well, I'm not that good. No, but you may be all they have. And as I already said, God put you where he put you for a reason. All of this is undergirded with a in regular intake of the word and the quiet time that was our first building block that involved the stabilization of a new convert. Now, you as a, as a, as the worker, your example matters. You've got to be you've got to be walking the talk. So do as I do, not as I say really applies here. So you better be thinking about your own life and the big glaring gaps, take them out. Fix it. It's not okay to continue as you were. Not anymore. This is a time of war. We're building soldiers. We're building warriors for the kingdom. We're talking about people that will be used to take Brisbane for Christ. Anything less than that isn't that. We don't need another conference, we need engagement. Let the spirit fall on you. Trent, that's the Lord speaking to you. You know these truths. God's, God's pricking your conscience in everything I'm saying. Availability, focus on the few. Better to have two that you do well with than 10 that you do halfway with. They need to be available and interested. Look for that level of interest and engagement. But you also need to be available. You need to open your life to them. I've already talked about that. And be transparent. Live your life like an open book. I mean, obviously, there are some things you might hold back in the interests of propriety, but in general, you should not hold much back. You need to let them see you as a human being, as a fellow believer, as a father, mother in the faith, somebody that they can be vulnerable with because you're vulnerable with them this level you're coaching your disciples with particular attention to their dedication their commitment their maturity their vision and their skills and their walk with God. You do want to pay attention to their walk with God. I thought it was very interesting when Phil Strout took over as the new US director of the Vineyard Movement. For the first several months everywhere I went and saw him, he was giving only one talk. There were different versions of it but it was the same talk everywhere. How's your soul? What's the state of your soul? You know why he was doing that? Because he saw that the spirituality of the vineyard was hollow. You could press your finger on it and punch right through it. There was no substance there. He started talking about the disciplines of St. Ignatius Loyola. He started talking about some of these basic building block things. We'd talk for so long about how do you get a word of knowledge down at Bunnings that we'd forgotten that we have to live like disciples in the day-to-day. And that's what we're doing here. We're rebuilding foundation and bankrupt foundations. I know a lot of what I'm saying here today is blocking and tackling. It's not sexy stuff. It's not the latest story about how an angel appeared to us or how we got transported to the Andromeda galaxy. But you know what? This is where the rubber meets the road, and this is what will transmit the life of God through us to a fallen world that is in need of deliverance and salvation. Now, that's you as the worker. Let's talk about them as the worker. They need to have a passion for multiplication. I already talked about multiplication. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. We are laid under a burden by Christ himself. They should carry the burden of the Lord for their cities, for their neighbors, for their civilization. And if they don't carry that, you know what that means? They are victim of a hard heart. Do you know how hard hearts come about? Hard hearts come about when people have truth that they don't live. Truth that is not acted upon will harden your heart. So if you don't feel burden, you have a hard heart. if you have a hard heart, you now know why. So go back to whatever it is that the truth was that you were presented by the Lord, whether it was yesterday or 10 years ago, go back to that and fix it. Change it. Live in obedience and life and power will flow out of it. Second thing for them as a worker, they need to faithfully hand over the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.2 says that whatever things you heard and received from me, Timothy, entrust into the hands of faithful men who will also be able to teach others. We need to be finding people who will reliably transmit what we have taught them. One of the problems the church has globally right now is most of our seminaries are filled with heretics. That's a true statement. I'm not taking the usual cheap shot. We have professors who don't believe the word of God, who are teaching their students to disregard the word of God. Why? Well, because I don't agree with it. Well, who said you get to choose? was in Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago and I was introduced to the dean of a seminary and I looked at him and I said, you don't have a large faculty he goes, that's right, I have 14 I said, three of them are troublesome for you because they don't submit to the lordship of Christ and they are not obedient to basic matters of faith and doctrine, one of them has to do with homosexuality, the other has to do with other world religions, he goes oh my god, where did you come from I said, not only that he had two other people with him. I gave a word to one of them, she got delivered of an evil spirit that had been assailing her for 20 years. And then there was another guy and he ended up on the ground like a like a pile of jello, blubbering and snotting. And he looked and he said, I've never met a Christian like this before. I said, that's because there's no disciples in your seminary. This is what disciples do. He said, I want you to come to my seminary and get your doctorate, I'll admit you. That was my application. care if you go to Moore College, Ridley College, Tabor, I don't care which one you go to, these issues are in play. You go to some of the other ones that are more on the liberal end, the battle's already over. We need people who will faithfully adhere to the truth and hand it over. And that means we need to be attentive to what people are saying. We need to listen to what comes out of their mouth. Sometimes they're just confused. Other times they're drifting. If you check them up early enough, you might actually be able to save an error from, uh, save a sinner from the error of his ways and save him from a multitude of sins is the way it is voiced in the third letter of John. worker needs to see people as an end not a means. There are far too many people who want to take somebody or more than one somebody and organize them and drive them like slaves in order to build their religious empire. We're not building religious empires. We're building the kingdom of God. Jesus said it this way. The kings of the earth exercise authority and their high officials, their lieutenants take that authority and use it to dominate those beneath them. I'm expanding it. That's the Ken Fish Amplified version. And then he says, it's not to be that way with you. Whoever would be great among you must serve the rest. So we need people who understand that people are an end, not a means. They will serve, they will care for, they will love those who are in need of love. Sometimes they'll be unlovely, other times they'll be very lovely, but they still need legitimate, authentic love. That means Mark 10, 45, they have a servant heart. Romans 12, 12 to 16, they have a heart for people. Romans 12, 12 to 16 is a pregnant passage. In fact, it's so pregnant, I'm gonna go there. Let love be genuine is the way it starts in verse nine. Abhor what is evil but hold fast to what is good and love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Strive to out-honor one another. Knock out the the little digs and the kind of smarty, you know, comments that guys in particular are famous for. Ah, got one up on you, mate. How about outdoing one another in showing honor and do not be slothful in zeal. Don't slack off. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And in it, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation because you will have it and be constant in your prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's what it means to have a heart for people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The next time someone comes against you, speak good of them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, celebrate with them. And when those who are broken and weep and weeping are weeping, weep alongside of them. Live in harmony with one another, choose harmony, choose not to respond in kind if it's going to open a breach and cause internecine warfare, not okay, choose harmony. Do not be haughty, don't lift yourself up, associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. Don't be a wiseacre, don't be a know-it-all. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There will be some for whom there will be no peace with them. They will continue to come after you and to harass you and make your life hell. All right, but still live as peaceably as you can in that context. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And to the contrary, instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what a heart for people looks like. Sometimes that enemy will be someone in your own congregation. Sometimes it'll be someone that was your disciple that you raised and invested in and they turned against you and like a rabid dog bit you. Here's another interesting one. Two Corinthians chapter two. This is what these are the these are the competencies for a worker that we're still on. 2 Corinthians 2 writes, and he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, remember we read about Troas? He had two Thessalonians and a Berean with him, right? When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, I had favor. There was a wide open fairway. The Troasians were waiting for me to preach to them and I had a great harvest in front of me, even in spite of that, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there so I left a great harvest waiting and I went to Macedonia to look for him that's a heart for people that's the that's the ethic of the navy seals we don't leave our dead and wounded on the beach we at least make sure they get home for a good burial. This is joining together. Most of us have seen the movie Gladiator. You remember the scene when they're in the the arena and they're trying to recreate the legions of Scipio and the chariots come out. What does Maximus say to the men with him? Any of you men ever been in the military? We have a much, much better chance of surviving if we stay together. And then that big German guy—he plants his shield, he takes his sword, his spear, and he says, "As one!" And they all say, "As one!" <laughs> that is the ethic. That's the ethos that we need to have. That is a heart for people. That is a heart for your comrades. That is a heart for your unit. And it especially shows, as Paul did here understanding the value of leaders and what happens when our key leaders get taken out so we want to protect them we want to help them a worker is a pace setter that means he lives all these principles in his or her own life and he sets the pace and in such a way that maybe it doesn't break those that are following along but it pushes them you know, a good drill sergeant, a good commander in the military, you know, he'll call cadence while running, but he always is just a little bit ahead of the troops. He's always pushing them to the next higher level of competency. And with that, as a pace setter, we remain focused on witness more than fellowship itis We remain outwardly focused. We continually remind people we exist here to reach this world for Christ, and very specifically. We exist to reach Lawnton, Pine Rivers, and Brisbane for Christ. That's why we are here. Has very little to do with footy, has very little to do with birthday parties, has very little to do with our careers even. Even though we all want to do well in our careers, and we should do well in our careers if we're honoring God. But that's not our highest. Our highest is all about His objectives where we are based. The worker should be a thought leader. That means they think things through, they're logical, they see things before they happen and they are able to prioritize. They take what's important first and they take what's less important later. Not only that, a worker should be sensitive to others, both in speech and in actions. They monitor themselves to make sure that they would not unknowingly give offense to one of the weaker brethren or sister. Now, yeah, there will be some who, no matter what you do, they're gonna get offended. But the point is you've done all that you can think of to do to try to mitigate that kind of offense. What are common problems that you have developing workers? Five common ones. Number one, possessiveness. Oftentimes when people are moving into the the level of worker, that's my man, that's my girl, that's my woman, that's my team, those are my trainees. That sense of possessiveness, that's fatal because you know what's underneath it, pride it out. If you're you're working with workers, deal with it. Blindness to the weaknesses in their own disciples. They're so proud of the disciples that they've raised, they don't see their weak spots. So you have to help them have lateral vision. Sometimes they will reproduce in their workers their own weaknesses. Luke 6:40. Jesus said, it is enough for a disciple to become like his master. And so it is. Many times, disciples who are raised under a particular leader, worker level person, they take on that person's foibles and faults and they need to find a way to remove them from their own life. Sometimes there is attitude. I don't think that needs much commentary, but I'll just give you a scripture to look at, 1 Timothy 3, 6. The seeds of destruction, as long as he sought the Lord. Clear implication, he didn't always seek the Lord. That's what happened when he was 16, 18, 20, 22. This is a a dedicated and consistent young man. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneh and the wall of Ashdod and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. He built cities. Do you know how much money it takes to build a city? This is a man with vision. This is a man with purpose. This is a man who understood what God wanted. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. He goes on and talks about all that he did and all the machines that he built and the, the riches and the bowls and the stones and the size of his army, over 300,000 strong. Verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. He started well, but he didn't end well. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This was the job of the priests, not the kings. But he said, hey, I'm a holy man. I've sought God all my life. God's favor is with me. I can do this. And so he went and he offered incense, but Azariah the priest went went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord. I imagine they formed a cordon of men blocking him from the inner sanctum while he has his censer filled with incense priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And then Uzziah was angry. Who are you, Azariah? I'm the king. Out of my way. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried out to go because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. That is what happens to those who lose their depth in Christ. And guess what? When you rise in the things of God, you get busier. So disconnection is more easy to happen. That's why we focus first on that life in Christ and the abiding in the vine at this leader level. Martin Luther used to say, I have an exceptionally busy day today. I better pray another three hours. A leader knows his personal calling from God. He knows his own gifts or her own gifts. She knows what she enjoys doing and what seems to bring benefit and what has the blessing of God on it versus what doesn't have the blessing of God. And you'll know, by the time you're at this level, you'll know, you'll know when the hand of the Lord is with you. A leader is aware of his or her own blind spots and weaknesses, actively seeks to address them, actually seeks counsel and input. Where am I with this? How am I doing? Do I need a rebuke? Do I need correction in this area? Do you see anything in my life? Peter has fight and drive, does not easily give up even in the face of difficulty and opposition. Here's where, what it looks like in the life of the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 20. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what it looks like to have fight and drive, stick to to keep going, to press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. A leader can spot and recruit achievers who will be the next workers and leaders. Now this means probably a three to one to a five to one focus on strengths over weaknesses. It's not that he or she doesn't see the weaknesses, but he or she is constantly calling out the good things, summoning them into being, building and and nurturing those things in these rising leaders. What are the kinds of things that that this leader should be looking for in the rising ones? I'm going to give you a list, here we go. Number one, reliability. Somebody who sees things through to the end, doesn't quit. We're looking for that sign early on because that's going to be needed later on. They're resourceful. They do their best even with limited resources. This is fundamentally about stewardship. Do they use what they're given? Judges 3.31 is a single verse. Tells a story of a man named Shamgar. He was a judge. The Lord put the spirit of, of God on him to judge and to lead Israel in a time of great affliction and persecution from the Philistines. And it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Shamgar and he killed 600 Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Well, it'd be better to have a sword apparently no swords were available. So he used what he had and he ruled Israel. Judges 6.11, Gideon in the time of the Midianites, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he couldn't do it on a hilltop. It would have attracted the Midianites, but he had to thresh his wheat. And it says elsewhere that the Midianites had already swept the land clean, so somewhere he'd found some place to raise wheat that the Midianites didn't find, then he had to thresh it so he was resourceful on where he threshed it. We want people who are resourceful, who can think through how to do more with less and how to, how to keep things going. I'm going to brag on Kate again. Kate's exceptional at this. Kate will find a way to save 10 cents out of 50 cents. We want leaders that do that. The leader that's rising must be adaptable and flexible. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 23, Paul talks about, to the Jews I became like a Jew, to the Gentiles I became like a Gentile. I become all things to all men that I might win the more. So there's no entitlement mentality. I've got to fly business class. I have to stay at the Four Seasons. I'll only drink Evian water if you please. And when I come, I'd like you to have this gift basket with only this kind of dried fruit. We want people that'll roll with it, that are wash and wear. And with that, they're people-oriented rather than project-oriented. They understand this is about the people. The projects matter, but the people matter more. They have confidence with a variety of people. The rich ask him or her to serve, while the poor ask him or her to help them. And they're comfortable both with the rich and the poor. They can span the whole thing. They're enthusiastic. Psalm 119 says, uh, verse 10, says, I run eagerly in the path of your ways. Nobody wants to follow Eeyore. So if they're constantly, oh me, oh my, this is so hard. Gosh, this sucks. You know, you hear that kind of stuff coming out of a rising leader? Get on their ba- get on their case and fix that. It's not okay. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you got that stuff going on, you know you have a heart that is not filled with gratitude. You've got a heart that's filled with unbelief. You've got a heart that's filled with bitterness. And what does it say about bitterness? It will spring up as a bitter root that will defile many. It will poison a whole fellowship. rising leaders need to be alert to our environment. Now, in secular industry, we would call this having a a knowledge of the business, of the industry. In church life, we might just say it's a prophetic perspective on what the Spirit is doing among the churches. I think it says that somewhere. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We want people that have that prophetic sense, even if they aren't prophets in the strict sense of the word. We also want people with initiative. That means they're self-starters. I'm gonna brag on Kate again. I couldn't tell you how many times Kate comes to me and she says, Here, I've already done this, 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 and this. And maybe the night before I was thinking we need to start on this, 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 and this. She's already got it done in the morning, and I never messaged her, I never emailed her, I never said, I think we need to do this. Why? Because Kate has a lot of self-starting initiative. And she doesn't Need to be pushed. Sometimes she pushes me. You want people like that. A lot of times, leaders get threatened by it. Working Christian work is still work. I've never worked harder than when I started doing what I'm doing right now. My typical work day is 14 hours a day, whether it's email, meeting with people, praying with people, writing sermons. I don't know, but my I, I did I can't remember the last time I worked an eight hour day. I do take one day a week off, but I'll tell you what, I fight for it every time it gets challenged. Somebody wants to book something, some crisis comes up, whatever. Moses was busy shepherding sheep when he was called out of the burning bush. David was shepherding sheep when he was summoned to the feast with Samuel. Jesus, when he called Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were mending nets by the Sea of Galilee. He didn't call anybody who was sunbathing. Hello? Leaders also are stable. They have a trust in God. Psalm 1:15-9. you can look that one up later. And this is why they need to be stable. Those who like what they do will pressure him or her to do more. And eventually the demands become unsustainable. So they have to be able to, from base of centeredness in Christ, be able to say, no, that's not my God. that's not my job, that's not my calling. That one I will take. Those who dislike him or her will do all they can to oppose him or her up to and including persecuting, defaming their name, causing them problems with the national office and on it goes. They got to be able to withstand that one too. They also need organizational ability, two are better than one for they have good reward for their labor. They know how to build a team, a working team, a team that delivers the mail, that gets it done. They know how to define a goal in exact terms. They know how to break it down into manageable pieces. They set up an organization staffed with the right people to accomplish it. They give their workers the authority to complete the task and they follow up reliably. That means they don't just give it to them and forget about it, they actually follow up and say how would you do with that, where are we with that, give me the milestones and objectives. Why? Because they already broke it down into manageable pieces, they know what needs to be going on. Even if they aren't doing it, they are creating accountability. That too is highly spiritual. You know how we know that? Because Paul said to Tychicus in one of his closing, his closing of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, he says, Tychicus, see to it that you complete the ministry you receive from the Lord. A rising leader balances judgment with creativity. They are neither plottingly methodical nor flamboyantly creative, looking to make the big splash. And above all, first Timothy 3:9, they know how to evaluate teaching. They know sound doctrine and they can evaluate truth and when they spot error they go, there's something wrong with that. I know that's off. Time use. Well, we already said it. Time with God is paramount. But they also have a sense of what God wants, and they know when probably God wants it, approximately. They may not know exactly, but approximately. And that means they're able to prioritize based on the revelation they're receiving from God. They know their own capacity, and they leave a cushion time and resources because inevitably something's going to go off the rails and they're going to need that little bit of extra cushion so they manage to that in order that the whole enterprise keeps going. If this sounds complex and difficult it is, isn't it difficult being a leader David? And the bigger the scope of the work the more challenging it becomes. I just gave you a long laundry list and we're not going to get to my third talk which was on replication because we're out of time. And I want to have a ministry time. So some other time I'll come back and talk about replication and the uh, the discipleship lifestyle. But I just want to leave you with something that I'll return to tomorrow morning in the sermon. We have talked for a long time about this revival that we say we want. And I think think we've been earnest and hearty in our seeking of it and our love of it. We've prayed for it, at times more diligently and other times less, but we've prayed into it. But on the eve of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, who was its leader, made this statement, he said, beloved we have had teaching until we are hardened. Now it is time for us to pray. I wanna slightly take Finney's quote and modify it just a little bit. Beloved, we've had conferences until we are hardened. We've also had teaching until we are hardened. Now it is time for us to become disciples. Put our hand to the plow. Diligently and not look back. Just like Jesus said, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not worth anything. So, also, the one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said. I didn't say it, he did. I really believe that if we can get this incorporated into our faith communities, into our ecosystems of faith. hold one another accountable to the very things that I've been talking about. And we pray and we fast and we seek the face of God. If we continue steadfastly in the apostles teaching and we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe we can have our revival. I believe we have everything we need right now. We just haven't organized for it. And I really believe, I absolutely positively die in the ditch believe that Australia is the last bastion in the Western world and the barbarians are at the gate. Every other country has fallen to the forces of godlessness and secularism and you guys are tottering on the edge. You are Gondor in the War of the Ring and the armies of Mordor are coming. And the only thing that will stop it is if we raise disciples, true warriors of the cross, who know how to wage the spiritual war and who will take ownership of their particular sector. Brisbane is your sector. Pine Rivers is your sector. You guys are a little bit different sector, but you're traveling with us right now. Do you want your revival? That's the question. Because if you want it, I believe we can have it. But it will take some disciples. It only took 12. Jesus pulled it off. We don't need many, but we do need a few. And with that, I'm going to close, having skipped talk three altogether here's what I thought the Lord wanted to do, I was going to teach some about things that disciples do in section three, specific things they do, and I'll just give you a, a couple of bullet points, I'm not going to keep going. One is they operate in spiritual gifts and two is they build the church, both universally and locally, and they defend the truth, they contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I was going to talk about specific areas and domains where we need to be contending more than we do. Maybe we need to start contending. But anyway, they operate in spiritual gifts. They build the church. They contend and defend the faith. And they make other disciples in order that the world may be loved and that there would be an ever-increasing multiplication of the communities of faith. Now, this all happened in the New Testament because they lived under the rulership of, they lived under the domain in partnership with the person of the Holy Spirit who drove them along like a wind driving a leaf in the autumn breeze. And everywhere they went, they preached the gospel was with them, and in a 100 years, not even, 70 years, they had converted the whole of the Roman Empire. There's a book on this that, if you're looking for something edifying to read, it's called Christianizing Rome. I think it's out of print, but you can find it online, you know, use copies and so forth. And he talks about how the church in 70 years, with no online anything, no superhighways, no airplanes, no railroads, nothing honeycombed every first, second, and third tier city in the empire so that by the year 100 AD there was nowhere you could go in Rome and not find a viable functioning church now they were persecuted for another 200 years before the edict of toleration but that's what they did in 70 years, I wonder what we could do in 7 given the advantages that we have so with that if if you're in for this that I'm talking about You want to both become a disciple and become a discipler. You realize it's time to become a worker as I've defined it, or a leader as I've defined it. Or maybe you just realize I'm actually not yet a disciple, I need to become a disciple as I've defined it. All right, wherever you are is where you are. But if you want that, I actually do want to pray for impartation. I actually do want to pray for the Spirit of God to come down because they launched out to do all of this with the firmware and and operating system, software writing on top of the firmware and the operating system. They launched out with that through the power of the Holy Spirit. This three sessions I've given you most of the firmware and the software. I've certainly talked about the operating system. I've talked about how the whole thing runs on the back of the kingdom of God. And tomorrow I'm gonna talk a little more about this in a very particular way for this specific church, but I'm gonna hold that or I'll preach my sermon now and we'll go even later than we're gonna go. But if what I've said envisions you, if it inspires you, if it has changed your priorities, if it has caused you to want something higher and more noble, come on up to the front. We're going to pray for the Spirit of God to equip you for that. Because this is the hour and the barbarians are absolutely at the gate. And nothing less than the entire of the West hangs in the balance.